0: All right, let's start. Uh, I apologize for being a little late today and for the false start on the other stream. I really have to learn how to schedule these things ahead of time and then hop on them. But uh, thanks so much for being here. Uh, it's been quite a week. It's been really busy. Uh, I was just at work like 15 minutes ago, drove, drove here as quick as I could. And, uh, you know, only nine minutes late. So it's okay. It's okay. Uh, welcome back. It's Thursday, October 1st, 2020. Um, You know, the market's been kind of since last Thursday pretty, pretty even, pretty steady. We've been oscillating back and forth and I think we're gonna see continued volatility. Uh, We've had the world's messiest presidential debate since then. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, And the, the, um, yeah, so that presidential debate, U.S. stock futures, Dipped quite a bit after, well, after being up, and you know, understandably so. There was some questions about a um, a peaceful transition uh, of power. Uh, so here I'm going to adjust my volume. I think I'm overloading here. Uh, and but then again, like this, and then stocks rallied the next day, and we're, we're about even. So uh, it's kind of interesting. The market's really just hanging back, seeing what's going to happen with a lot of these things. Um, before we really get into it, uh, obviously, like all of our episodes. Uh, this one is brought to you by Fundrise, which is my favorite way to invest in solid diversified real estate without actually having to own your own properties and manage them, which is kind of crazy. You know, I have to do a lot of work, uh, keeping up our uh, payment system, our kind of tenant management system. We use Yardy Breeze. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a, a consumer focused version of a very institutional tool. Uh, and so, and I have to write leases. I have to send them out using DocuSign. Uh, it's a lot of work. So if you don't have, want to do that and want to expect something like they've seen historically, again, can't expect it. But, um, you know, they've seen somewhere in that 8 to 12% range year over year types of returns. It's pretty solid. So especially in this kind of crazy time, stability, not having Mr. Market chirp at you, having a big private equity team to support you and kind of roll out your money. Uh, that's really, really good. So, And if you're here for the first time, don't forget to sign up for Morning Sense, which is our free daily morning newsletter. Uh, we try to get out in the morning uh, as best we can, uh, where we kind of decipher the craziness of the news headlines and business and ec- economic news and try to help turn it into actionable insights and guidance for you using, well, first of all, my experience just kind of in the industry. Uh, I love following the economy and businesses and um, you know I'm able to do this now. Um, and uh, we also do $30 giveaways every time. So for those of you returning, you know that. Um, so make sure to enter through the link in the description. I think I put it in. Uh, world's quickest prep time. I really need to schedule these ahead of time. Um, and if you can't watch this live and if you're not watching this live, we do $100 key- keyword giveaways. Um, so you can enter any time this week if you watch this video with, through the keyword giveaway link below. And this week's keyword to win 100 bucks uh, is lease, is leases? Sorry, it's leases. Let me, let me check. Let me check what I wrote. Oh, it's leases, multiple leases. But I'll I'll give you a pass if you win and you just do lease. Um, and uh, I I'm mean, you know, piggybacking off of that, uh, we should pick our keyword giveaway person from last week. So kind of drum roll. Um, we had two hundred and sixty to entrance, but I think depending on what you do, you can enter on you know multiple times. So not that many people uh, enter. So our winner this week is Adnan. Adnan uh, with, with the keyword from last week, lawn care, and he is yet another Canadian. You know, YouTube statistics show me that 80 to 90% of the viewership here is American, but it seems like half of the uh, raffle winners are always Canadian. So I don't know if I believe that. Maybe everyone's using a VPN. I'm not sure. Someone tell me. Um, yeah, and thank you so much for being here. I'm reading some of these comments. Really appreciate you being here and finding this. I was late on the draw, uh, came from work, and I also, um, I don't know, I, I should really schedule these, learn how to schedule these. But uh, And thank you so much for those of you that are no, uh, noticing the new logo. Um, a lot of you have been asking for like, t-shirts that I can give away or hats and stuff and just general merch, uh, especially for ROIC members. And I wasn't quite happy with the old logo that I like, I used this like logo making service I paid some money. Um, it was pretty, it was okay, but I I didn't see it, especially with the color schemes, um, on like a t-shirt, right? Like I I didn't see myself being able to wear that. And, uh, so just kind of toyed around in Canva, which is a relatively free tool. And uh, you know, I I like the logo, so hopefully we can put that on like some hats and t-shirts at this point and then maybe do some giveaways around them. So that's awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, are the raffles rigged for Canadians? I don't know. I'm using Rafflecopter. I'm using Rafflecopter. So if you guys know a better way to run the raffles that isn't Rafflecopter, I pay Rafflecopter a good amount of money. I think I pay them just to run these things. A lot of you are like asking like how much it take to run these things. My subscription, how much do I pay these guys? I pay them almost $100 a month to run these raffles. It's kind of crazy, kind of crazy. Um, so thank you for all your support, all you who are uh, heroic members on the website. It really helps kind of pay for all this stuff. I mean, all the, the smallest things about making content, you wouldn't imagine cost money, right? Um, so it's anyway. So yeah, okay, liquidity. I, I followed liquidity long before I was making content. Liquidity is a, uh, is a is a funny like meme Wall Street meme uh, account. I've, yeah, it's been on Instagram. Finance God. I talked to Finance God. Uh, finance God is hilarious as well. So go follow Finance God on Instagram if you like the like Wall Street finance joke meme accounts. Uh, finance God and Liquidity are kind of the two ones that I can think of off the top of my head. But I don't really have time to to be on Instagram anymore. I barely have enough time to create enough content for you guys, and and, and girls. So. Thank you so much for being here. It's been crazy. It's crazy week, although the stock market hasn't been that crazy. Playboy is now going through, going public. They're not public or they're planning on going public through a SPAC, um, Mountain something, MCAC. I I can never get these SPAC names straight. yeah, oh yeah, And d- before I forget, if you're new here and if you have a question that you're just dying to get answered, remember to call into the voicemail number below. It looks like we have like nine voicemails from, from last week that I need to get through quickly. So um, yeah, that's the way to kind of, not, maybe not cut in line, sometimes the chat moves really fast. The voicemails are more entertaining for everyone, so hopefully we, we get some of those answered. Um, and yeah, so let's dive into it, it's been crazy. So I mean, for those of you that are on the new Morning Sense newsletter, you know, I'll show you what it looks like and we can pop to a different view. Give me a second here. Uh, desktop, there it is. This is my Gmail and this is what it looks like. So we're we're constantly trying to make it imp- and improve it, trying to summarize what we have. We have my quick reads up here. Uh, you know, the business news that we really care about or that, that are important for the day. And then kind of my read and I try, I try to help interpret using like my experience valuing, like I've, se- I've I've basically read the filings and done models for hundreds of companies through my career. And obviously like I'm doing, I'm kind of managing companies' finances. So me looking at valuations and looking at filings of just a lot faster. So even if you're good at it, you know, hopefully, you know, my insights, whether or not you agree with them or not, um, are helpful. Right. And kind of let you know off of a gut, you know, is something overvalued, is something Looking interesting, right? And you don't really know if it's a screaming buy unless you do a lot of digging. So you know, here we're uh, we are fundamental, long-term investors at heart, and uh, you know we like to have fun with these spacs. But just know that, I, like a lot of, I think I've gotten some comments that were a little confused. Uh, nowhere on the rogue big board does it say speculative bets. So when you think about your investment portfolio. You got to think capital compounders, strong multi-year, long-term growth stocks at reasonable prices. So you know things that we always like, um, you know deeply undervalued value stocks or really kind of undervalued stocks that might you might hold for like a one to three-year performance for cash flow. And then you got real estate, and then you got kind of like your inflation hedges. So that's like gold, potentially Bitcoin, and then you got cash. And so I think the latest iteration of our target allocations today are, if you see here, are 20% cash. So I am increasingly convinced that household savings through COVID are good enough to get us through a few more months. But if government stimulus does not continue and we can't come to an agreement left and right, this is not a political show, it's just can you come to an agreement to give the people enough stimulus, then I think you might see a a contraction. So that's what I'm keeping the 20%. And if the market rips on us and keeps ripping on us and then new information comes out and we're just in the clear and we're in a a brand new bull market and it's very obvious, I won't feel so bad not having put 20% of my cash to work. But I will feel very bad if I invest this cash right here, um, right now, knowing valuations are pretty high we're, enter, we're in uncharted territory with fiscal policy, monetary policy, uh, trade with China. We are in uncharted territory. I would be remiss if we had another stock market drawdown and I didn't have what we call in the industry dry powder. So dry powder just means available cash to deploy. So I, I feel pretty good and pretty defensible here. We anchor our portfolio with the 20% allocation to real estate, and I know a lot of you are hardworking individuals. I know all of you are, depending on what you do. Um, real estate's a great, probably it, it is my favorite way. If I had to pick one way of like, if you are 60 years old and you want a passive real a passive stream of income for your investment portfolio, it definitely isn't bonds, especially when rates are near zero. It's diversified real estate in the private markets, not the public. And you're looking for, you know, like you're definitely looking for cash on cash, you know, above six or 7%. So, you know, that would provide you kind of a good return on capital just as an income stream. Um, and then obviously on top of that, it's kind of cherry on top for capital appreciation. So, uh, you know, property appreciation, but, you know, you know, I'm still young, so the, the real estate skew that me and my colleagues have here in Nashville is a little bit more gentrifying neighborhoods, more for that capital upside. Although we do see really good NOI yields. I know I'm going on a tangent, but um, kind of the best of both worlds, but we still are trying to go a little bit riskier, not in the mature neighborhoods, like the more developing ones. Um, so I really like real estate. That keeps you grounded. You don't have Mr. Market saying every day, your, your properties are worth less. Your properties are worth more. Your properties are worth less. Sometimes that's really toxic, right? But we don't want to rob ourselves if you're under the age of, I don't know, 55, 60. You don't want to rob yourself of truly innovative companies that go- are going to change the landscape of how people do business or people interact with the world or buy things from the world. And we are in a time, more than any, of constant innovation. So... That's why half of the portfolio, it's very, it works out very nicely. Target allocation, you know, is stocks. And nowhere, when I do these SPAC videos, nowhere in this am I saying they are core positions here. They're just, it's just fun content to create. You know, just, you know it's fun to think about companies that are earlier stage, pre-revenue. So again, when you, when you think about the pie chart, You know, if I'm more risk-on than I am now, I usually would have a sliver here for speculative bets, you know? But what I would actually, in today's world, what I would do is I would say, this is my investment money. And then this is my fun money. This is money I would otherwise buy on an extra Chipotle burrito. Or this this is the amount of money that I would otherwise be going to the bars and restaurants, but it's COVID, so I can't. So, you know, a lot of people would just, divert all that money to investments, but it's, again, we got to live a little, you know, divert some if you're, if you're kind of craving some more excitement in your life, just think about them and bifurcate them in your head. You got the vast majority of your wealth should be in your investment portfolio. And then whatever you would otherwise use at the casino, you know, there are SPACs abound. It seems like there's two SPACs coming out per week that are high profile. And, you know, everyone in their and their mother has a SPAC now. Every financier is opening up a um, opening up a spec so it's kind of crazy so again just keep that in mind whenever you see like these spec videos on me uh, from me whenever I'm saying like this looks interesting I'm comparing it against other speculative bets I'm not comparing it against King Daddy uh, Amazon right Amazon is it's just like one is an investment and one is a one is gambling so just keep that in mind Awesome. Um, cool. So I'll i I'll, I'll answer uh, a question, a question from the chat right now. So Mark, thank you so much. Uh, how would you value a company with negative EBITDA, and why don't most of the stocks you pitch use a DCF? Is it because they are usually too young? Well, I'm not really pitching. Uh, I'm trying to. There's a lot that goes out in the news, and a lot of high-profile stocks out there you know I really like capital compounders. Those things like highly diversified dominant businesses don't necessarily need a DCF. Um, That's kind of the Warren Buffett style, right? So if I'm buying Microsoft, I don't really need to, like I have access to institutional research reports. I don't need to pour through uh, their DCFs a ton to really know if something looks reasonably priced, but I know their incremental ROICs are going to just compound my capital over time. Even if I buy at 10 to 20% higher, sorry, I'll move this back to me. Even if I buy 10 to 20% higher than uh, you know what the DCF says, but I also don't know today what the discount rate should be, uh, if they have incremental ROICs of like 50, 20, 30%, then all I got to do is wait six months or a year, and then it just keep compounding, right? So some some of these things are just so slap in the face obvious that you just kind of want to let them allocate your capital for you. I would rather uh, Satya Nadella go invest in more servers for his Azure uh, services, cloud services, than me try to go find another stock. Does that make sense? So if I own microsoft or amazon i know for a fact they have so many investment opportunities out there whether amazon probably like inherently knows that if it's going to spend a billion dollars on a company it wants to see a 5x plus return on that where am i going to find a 5x plus return pretty no-brainer meaning no satya nadella you know uh jeff bezos Those guys, and obviously they're gigantic teams and they have huge finance teams, investment teams, they have sure bets where it's gonna be 2X, 3X, 4X, 5X, 6X returns, 10X returns. So I would, I mean, all things aside, I would rather have them, I would rather give them my money right now, buy in, regardless of what the DCF says, because if you change the, at this point, if you change the discount rate on the DCF, one or two points, it's like, what is the fair market value, right? If you, if you do all this, I would rather have them compound the capital. So that, that's that, right? For the earlier stage companies that I'm not pitching, I'm just covering them for you, if you're for your kind of speculative bet portfolio, they are too early stage. So if it's something is negative EBITDA or negative cash flow, um, then I usually go on how good is the business, first of all? How big is the market? Do I think they're gonna win a material share of that market? So that's the first thing, right? Because if you don't have that, you don't have anything. Second thing is, do you have, um, how fast is revenue growing? How do I think about revenue in terms of the total market and their momentum and their future momentum? And then secondly, I like the valuation on, in terms of, is this wildly overpriced or is it not? I like looking at enterprise value to gross profit. So the reason why I like doing that is because, I remember, so I did a video on Asana, so if you haven't checked that out, they just went public this week through a direct listing. Dustin Dustin Moskowitz, Moskowitz, I think Dustin Moskowitz, who is a co-founder of Facebook, is the CEO of Asana. And he got directly asked about, you know, managing profitability and revenue growth. And he said, so good, you know he knows what he's doing. He said, as a CEO, I am less focused on profitability as I am on the unit economics. So it all boils down to the unit economics. Are the unit economics attractive? And how much can I grow my units? So you can be growing a million percent a year, but if you lose money on each teddy bear you sell, let's say say you sell a billion dollars of teddy bear A year and let's say you sell them for a dollar each so you sell a billion teddy bears a year but it costs you you know one a dollar ten to make them I don't want you to grow I don't I want you to scale back because you are losing money so that's what we call unit economics so unit economics are how much money does it take you to to make the product and how much do you get from selling it so revenue minus direct expenses so the reason why I look at gross profit is because that generally on a quick glance captures how much money they're making by units. And when you're early stage, you really have to ramp up your corporate costs. You need HR, you need accounting, you need legal, you need your C suite, you need salespeople, you need marketing, all this stuff, right? This is stuff that I'm doing, like I budget myself in my day job. You know, talk to my CEO about that. Um, so when you don't have, when you look at kind of the gross profit and what I'm talking about revenue growth and gross profit and gross margins should stay relatively similar, right? I wanna see forward gross profit and get a valuation on forward gross profit and try to compare that against some of their peers because the whole point of a super early stage company is if their unit economics are good, then you that gross profit should grow in tandem with revenue growth and corporate costs should stay around sim- Like it should, it'll grow obviously, but you're, you start out with a big base and it'll grow slower while revenues and gross profits grow over those costs. Right? So it's kind of like that. So that's why I look at gross profit enterprise value to gross profit. Cool. And obviously that's why earlier stage companies don't have debt. They have a lot of cash because they know they're going to burn cash until they get, until gross profit scales over their corporate costs. But a lot of them are still down here. And for some of them, like Nikola and this new one called App Harvest, they don't even have revenue. So I don't even look at that. I don't really like those ones. Um, Cool, so I appreciate you all being here. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. Thank you, Sarab. I appreciate you here. Darwin, Uber, horrible unit economics, why is it valued more now than before the pandemic? When the majority of the business is gone uh i think it's because they're seeing a a um well two things and i don't follow uber and lyft super closely i think some of the california worries about them not being able to operate in california is a little bit uh dispelled for now two i think you know i think the market has generally gone up too and the, you know if you think of them as a tech stock which arguably they are aren't um, they're going to be traded with Nasdaq baskets so like let me let me pop back to a, a screen here for you Nasdaq so you look at the year chart right so why is uber more exp- you know more expensive than it were, was before this year well the whole Nasdaq is so i think there's some funds flow things there and baskets basket buying and two i would say why do people like uber i don't like uber i always thought the unit ac- economics were really bad i've kind of come back on the iBuying buying trend with homes i don't think the unit economics are all that great for chamath Paliapatias open door or zillow or redfin um, so i don't have a huge view on on those three iBuying stocks yet but you have to really be careful about return on equity, on that. Anyway, neither here nor there. Uber, it's 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 the faith if Uber is going to scale over bad unit economics, right? Um, by the time they scale, though, don't you think autonomous driving is going to come eat their lunch? I think Uber, Lyft, Postmates, I like DoorDash. DoorDash is the best of them all, but. Connecting drivers and delivery to buyers, I might do that tonight, honestly, after the show, I'm starving, Um, is one of the weaker types of network effects, in my opinion. Because you just like, some of these things you can be super intellectual about, but sometimes you're like, you just have to ask yourself this. When I use this product, is that the only one that I'd use? And do I just always go to that? Or two, do I have that product plus all of its competitors and just like price shop? That is a really, really good indicator of if something is more commodity or if something is more barrier to entry and moat, right? So when you think about Google, or what do you do on the the internet? You go to Google and you search stuff, right? You don't even go to DuckDuckGo and you don't even go to Bing, or maybe some of you are crazy out there. You don't go, like, when you go to social media, you go to Facebook, Instagram, um, and now TikTok is threatening that regime. Um, when, you know, when you go shop, where do you go? You go Amazon, right? Amazon and Google, Amazon is ripping the shopping away from Google. Um, but when you go look for a, a ride, a lot of people have both Uber and Lyft, and then they just like check, wait, who has more drivers and what's the price? And then similarly, like, when I look at, uh, when I look at, I'm getting some intense modeling questions here. Uh, Hopefully, I get to it. Um, When you look at, uh, lost my train of thought. When you look at, uh, like, Postmates, Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub, like, uh, Seamless Web, like, you usually price compare them, right? So, anyway, that's all that. I'm down a rabbit hole. I'm going to answer this one because, Joe, it seems like you're asking about DCFs. When you look at at your weighted average cost of capital, so WAC for your DCF, which is a discounted cash flow model, which is how we value companies, do you factor in the IRP, i.e. revenue percentage by country, for the overall RFR? That, That makes a huge difference in cost of equity. Um... Also, what equity risk premium do you use? 6.9%. So first of all, I think DCFs are breaking down right now as someone who's done hundreds professionally. um, I will say when you're in the industry, and I don't know if you are, so maybe I'm talking out of my, just my end of, of the experience in the industry. I have never talked to another hedge fund analyst that has gotten bogged down with what the discount rate is. Because at the end of the day, um, first of all, I don't know what IRP is. Is that international risk premium? So I kind of, that's really interesting. I do think you have to factor how much is international and how much is like North America. That's really interesting. I don't really have an answer for you for that right now. Uh, When you're talking about equity risk premiums, it's like, at the end of the day, there are, let me show you this, right? And sorry, for those of you uh, that don't want to geek out on me so you can, With DCFs, you can, hold on. So equity risk premium. Let's just do some Googling. A lot of people here aren't, are just trying. So it it basically means the excess return that investing in the stock market provides over the risk-free rate. So instead of investing in a treasury bond that you know is going to get paid back by the U.S. government, which is what we consider the risk-free rate, um, how much more return do you need to invest in the stock market? That's the premium that you need. That's what an equity risk premium. So the way you, you teach that, a lot of people teach that is the CAPM model, right? So cost, uh, so your, yeah, cost of equity. So this is a equity risk premium equals the risk-free rate plus beta times uh sorry, the uh, market risk premium. So obviously like, I mean, I'm not gonna explain this here. This is like, I think generally somewhat of a uh, non-professional in the industry show, but I will say, right, this is not the formula that gives you a true equity risk premium um, because first of all, Tesla's equity risk premium should be very different from its stock price beta. So let me explain that, Joe. I know you're, um, okay, so he's defining things. Interest rate parity, risk-free rate. Hold on. I'm gonna nerd out with you here. Uh, uh, Sorry, do you factor in the interest rate premium? Interest rate parity, sorry, for overall risk-free rate. Yeah, so I mean, to be honest, like the answer really is I don't get bogged down by it. So like Seth Klarman at Baupost famously just slaps a 10% uh, discount rate on it, right? Um, you know what we did was actually what we did was um, in, in one of my hedge funds we did a levered free cash flow model, so levered discounted cash flow model, and so we assumed leverage over time, and we. Discounted all those cash flows back by the the equity premium that we wanted, in which we wanted our cost of capital as a hedge fund was a fifteen percent cost of capital. I know I'm going to lose a lot of you for this. I'm so sorry, um, but that's what we did. So at the end of the day, it isn't. It's like almost. It's nigh impossible to, um, Yeah, So so I, I'm I'm exactly talking about this, Joe. A one percent difference in the discount rate is a huge swing in the valuation. I'm telling you in real like in real time in the real world no one knows what the true equity risk premium is. Right? It's all kind of academic. So at the end of the day, the best models out there are LBO models. So, you know, it, the next model I do for you all, I don't know if I'm going to have time to do another deep dive DCF like I did with Peloton with you guys and guys, right? Peloton, great. I mean, it was worth the work. We made a lot of money on Peloton. My opinion is not advice. My opinion is not advice. Um, And I did the DCF and you guys all saw it. It's on ROIC. It's uploaded there. Um, I think flipping it and saying, if I buy at this price, what will the cash flows return to me? And is that an acceptable return to me? as like I am an equity investor. And this is, again, I'm not really professionally investing anymore. I'm serving as a CFO of a company. So some of the things that like, I think you need for the professional rigor, it's kind of like 80, 20 rule, right? I don't have 7am to midnight hours to dedicate on like specificities of a operating model, three statement model and a DCF, right? So, so what I do is like a lot of this is 80, 20. It's like a lot of these multiples, like making sure the, the incremental ROICs are good, making sure you believe in the general trend, because honestly, you can like, I've seen the best ICOM, so investment committee pitches fall apart in real life because they got all the details right in the operating model and the DCF and they like slaved over the DCF, but they got the trend wrong, right? And so it isn't so much about for us as in, as independent investors, where um, we're investing our four hundred and one k money, right? There's no like liquidity event. There's no capital calls, right? It's my money. It's your money. There's no capital calls. You have decades for this stuff. You want to. You care about getting the trend right. You care about defensibility and moats. Obviously, love Warren Buffett. I'm a I'm a value investor at heart. And then. Thirdly, you want want that the unit economics and incremental ROICs are there too, right? You don't want them to grow crappy unit economics, like possibly Uber. Um, So, yeah, so that's that. And then hopefully we can leave that in our 401k for five, six years, and then we can, like, revisit it. And it's like, okay, things have changed. Like, I think Apple is starting to get to the point of change. Like, Apple was my first love. I invested in Apple, like, the second I got my hands on the first iPhone. It was game-changing. And, you know, that the biggest mistake is I sold for a profit. That's my biggest mistake, right? Like, these, these, these game-changing, capital-compounding, growing, trend-dominating companies are those 401k gold mines. You just keep buying. And so what I'm telling you is, like, Amazon's one of those things, unless they get broken up. Um, Google, maybe less so on the how big can they grow? Cause they're already pretty big, but I think they've got a lot. I mean, news broke out today, right? I released a video. Oh, I have to release another video. Um, that they're create they're setting aside $1 billion in paying news publishers. Like YouTube is amazing. And YouTube is gonna continue to grow and be, I believe in YouTube, right? You guys are all watching me on this. Um, they're gonna create like news aggregation and then maybe pay publishers. That's like, I think all these things are really high high conviction trends that they're gonna dominate, hopefully, unless they get broken up, and we'll, you'll see a lot of high ROIC dividends in the future. Okay, cool. Awesome, thank you so much. And also, leave comments, not just in the chat, comments, for any ideas for merch or anything. I'm always ears, it's awesome, so hopefully we can get that done. There's a lot moving on, hopefully we can redo the website. The website's a little bit clunky right now, so stick with me on, on ROIC. Um, and thank you so much. So we actually have to, um, yeah, Peloton. Yeah. Holly, how, how are you? Uh, okay. So let's, we got 12 voicemails. So let's, let's, let's turn through these. Oh, wait, I do have to do the row questions first. If there are any, how are you today? How's your week going? You, are you guys going to take a bet on Playboy SPAC stock? It's reasonable. All right, so hold, hold on while I pull up the Q and A's. Okay, so we got we got a couple actually. Um, let's see, five days ago, one week ago, PayPal versus Square, we did that one. Palantir, DCF model numbers, Roku. okay, so we got a few. We got a lot of questions. Okay, cool, thank you so much. So Jose is asking, uh, hey Justin, Palantir's IPO. Okay, so yeah, um, $10 a piece. Suro Capital Corp owns around 5.7 million Class A shares of Palantir. Bought them at 2.8 a share. Uh, fair value at 5.3 a share. When uh, Palantir IPOs at 10 bucks, will this increase Suro Capital's fair value by 27 million, or is that already priced into these current stock price? So that's an interesting question. So. Ticker SS, this is interesting. Sentio. let's go to Sentio. Ticker SSSS, that's four S's. They're trading at a... Okay, they're down 11%. They're trading at a $161 million market cap. And I would have to look at their net asset value. So... If you do the calculation and you add up all their net asset value, this is what I have to so go into their filings, go look at what they are holding, and if you can sum up, sum up um, the fair values of all their holdings, if you can, some things are private. I don't know. I don't know anything about Suro Capital Corp. Uh, and that's more than the enterprise value of where the stock is trading at today. Then it's trading at a discount to NAV. So that inherently means that they own assets that people think will lose value or they're going to invest in a way that destroys value, which is really insulting to a management team, investing management team. Um, so do that. I can't do that in real time for you, but go do that. And, but your, your, your hunch is right. If you think that they own a bunch of assets that aren't going to lose value and are worth more than what the company is worth right now, that's an arbitrage opportunity and you should buy that. Like that is a great kind of value investing pitch for sure. So I'll do that. More of a financial engineering value investing pitch. So sorry, I can't do that in real time. It would take a lot of filing work. So um, increasing cash position. Andrew's asking, would you increase your cash position? So he asked this last week. So we're catching up last Thursday. Would you increase your cash position position at all? Sell some positions when most, most of your stocks are long-term capital compounders and tax-free accounts? and you've maxed out contribution room as a college student or just hold. If you're truly, it's tough to find the real capital compounders, but if you're truly in the Amazons the Microsofts and some of the growth ones that I'm in, I think you just hold. I think you just hold because I know you're a college student, but just hold them because when you sell, you don't know if it's gonna keep going up or down. And so like at that point, you're kind of 50, 50 at the, vagaries of the stock market to for that to have been a good good move or a bad move so for now like especially for retirement accounts just hold just hold right like you're not touching that stuff um tom s is asking uh change in conviction for google and facebook can you provide a quick update on why you have lowered your conviction on google and facebook so I've never, maybe it was like kind of unclear on the rope, big board. I never actually lowered the conviction. I just don't like it as much as Amazon. Does that make sense? In order, I like Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft around the same way. Does that make sense? Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft. And then, if you want international exposure, go by the Chinese dominance. I don't think China is breaking up anything for antitrust, right? So, I I I will be su- like surprised if China ever broke something up because of antitrust, it's because the government owns everything. All right, Jordan O. Oh. Just followed through my live DCF walkthrough number one. At the very end, when you're checking... Dis- oh, a lot of modeling questions today. When you're checking depreciation and amortization, I came up with different numbers slightly. If you're multiplying revenue by 3.8%, the number I get on Excel are different from your numbers. Oh, yeah. So for the first video, Jordan, it's actually... Um, that was a hard code. So the 3.8% was a um, dividing by... Depreciation and amortization by revenues, so I backed into that number. Also, I got got a lot of this a lot of these questions, and I I asked the same very question when I was starting to learn how to discount cash flow models. Um, don't necessarily use the DNA number, so dis- depreciation and amortization number in the income statement. You want to use the one from the cash flow statement. So they can disclose DNA on the income statement, uh, but on the cash flow statement, that sums up all the non-cash DNA. So just use that number. So that's that. Um, Roku, Tyson, what's up, man? Um, I know you're on here. Um, What are my thoughts on Roku? Uh, I haven't covered Roku in a while. Roku has been a resilient honey badger in a highly competitive market. I don't love it long term because the valuation here is very expensive. They're growing at—I mean—they have such high growth rates. So they're growing at 30 to 40 percent growth over the next three to five years. High gross margins, even for hardware software, um, but they are trading at like 25 times forward gross profit, and I—I I have trouble understanding. Oh, I was an early adopter of Roku. Roku was the first what I would call internet tethered television streaming device that I ever bought. And I was a Roku household. I made everybody buy Roku, 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 Roku. You know, I'm finally in the the place where Google, Amazon, and Apple are finally catching up and making such a seamless offering that you kind of have to be, um, when you're talking about an internet of things household, like i think of your 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 tv box as part of the internet of things and so you're either going to be a kind of google nest internet of things household or you're going to so you say okay google like that's what's going to happen or you're going to be an amazon household and you're going to say hey alexa right and so you're going to have a fire stick you're going to have an alexa you're going to have these um the alexa like you know uh, pods and and screens and all that stuff. Um, or are you going to do Apple TV because it integrates with your phone and your mobile and your iPad? I'm I'm at the point where Roku does not rule my house anymore, and so that's concerning because you can be right on the on the valuation of the DCF, but if you're wrong on the trends, you don't know how quickly the trends will come. I don't. I still fail to see how Roku continues to be so successful against in the face of Better and more seamless experiences. Um, you know, I still have two Rokus in my house. I have a Fire Stick and I have a I have an Apple TV. Um, it's pretty cool though. One of, my, one of the Rokus in my house is actually integrated with the TV. It's a TCL. It's like the lowest tier. It's like a big Costco TV. Um, so maybe that's, I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong there. I think they're really expensive. So if you're going to pay... 25 times forward gross profit on a growth company you know i think i'd rather buy spotify i think they just have a better moat long term um and they're trading at and they have a similar growth rate uh and they're trading at 15 times forward gross profit so you're getting 10 turns of a discount buying spotify to the same type of consumer than you do a roku and so i prefer spotify so it's not that I hate Roku, it's just expensive and as Spotify is more reasonably priced. Awesome, cool, thanks Tyson. Uh, when is it, Andres is asking, hold on. So Rob, the, uh, this, First, prioritize Q&A is for ROIC members uh, that support me on A cents.com. And so we have a little forum on there. And it's just like a little section that says Q&A for live shows. So I, I handle these first and try to get to voicemail questions. And then, as you can tell, I try to get to text questions. Um, okay, Michael, I'll, I'll refresh too. Um, so good good time to get in Boeing. I think I just I, I forgot my rationale, but I don't like Boeing too much. Um, okay, so Andre says they just announced a deal with the U.S. Miss, Missile, Defe- Missile Defense Agency. And are around 145 bucks a share they're down from trading in 350 bucks a share range a year ago they still have defense military contracts and eventually the commercial deals will come back when is boeing a buy is it better to wait until the commercial business is back to normal or until we get a vaccine uh, my question is considering a two to three year time horizon at minimum i think there are better COVID stocks that are more directly correlated with the return to the world. What I'm like, I know this is gonna be apples and oranges, but certain goods are like mattresses. So when you're looking at mattress stocks and when you're looking at maybe bus stocks, like bus manufacturers, or when you're looking at even, I I did, I I was on a deal that was potentially going to acquire um a one of the largest lasik eye centers in the country um and products like these so planes buses uh large ticket consumer goods they're not super comparable but but i'm going to explain it in a recession or in hardship people just flat they're the first things people don't buy when you are struggling for money as an economy the last thing you're going to buy is a, is a mattress. I mean, you might be selling a mattress, to be honest. You're not buying mattresses. Um, when the airline industry is fighting for dear life, uh, the last thing they're going to do is buy new planes when their current planes fly. So I just don't think... Like, Let me look at the valuation of Boeing. Just give me a second. I'll share my screen. I don't care. Someone might... Okay, so let's look at it together. Um, so 67 bucks a share. Okay, they're trading at, estimates are saying, see if you look at the estimates, this is their Boeing 737 max scandal hit here, I think. This is a COVID hit. And then analysts are currently, I don't know how dated these estimates are, currently estimating a 34% rebound in it, right? In revenues. That being said, They're still trading at 15 times forward EBITDA, which is, okay, it's just on my mind, like less than consumer goods companies uh, that are doing well. So it's not cheap. It's not cheap. So I don't love it. All I have to say, I know we have a lot of questions today. I don't love it because if this was trading at like five times forward EBITDA, then maybe. Um, I'm going to hide the screen. I'm going to see if, One of the big investment banks that i have access to has a research report on boeing i'm sure they do it's big mega cap stock um give me a sec my internet's kind of slow hey guys chit chat while my internet's slow all right let's see boeing boeing Huh. No. Okay, no research reports, so we're a little little out of luck there. So I just don't love it. I think there are better stocks to put your money with. I don't think it's a you know, maybe it's a it's not catching a falling knife, but it's a company that's poorly run, highly levered. Um they have huge missteps with their like how they build their their planes. I mean, this 7 737 Max scandal. I just don't have any confidence in that company or their momentum or the covid trend. So if you're trying to be like picking a good stock and understanding valuation is hard enough, which is why I'm here. And when you're going to be right about if a company's going to do well? Man, if you have to be right about five four things, that's tough, right? So think about going to the roulette table. Um it's a it's always hard for me to bet on individual numbers because not only do you have to bet be right that it's red or black, you also have to be right that it's an even number or that it's a, it's a specific number. So the more things you have to be right about, the more likely it is that you're wrong, right? So with Boeing, you have to be right about COVID and the return to work and business travel. So by the way, the, the majority of, of of airline revenues are consumer, but half of the profits are business. So you have to re- you have to be right about the return to business travel, which I don't see happening very soon. Plus, you have to be right about the replenishment cycle of airlines to buy more Boeing jets. Thirdly, you have to be right about are they going to be is there going to be a movement to buy more Airbus or Bombardier jets over uh, Boeing because of Boeing's you know crappy handling of situations. And then fourthly, you have to be right about like that they can get there through liquidity and get there you know, fast enough and be managed in a good way. You have to be right about all these things. It's just something that I have no confidence on three out of four of those or four out of five of those really. So it's just not a, not a investment that I would, I would like. Cool. Awesome. So I, uh, Michael, you said you had one more, so I'm going to refresh this. Okay. So Michael, I answered this last week, but Albertson's, is a resilient business and go back to previous, I should do a dedicated video on Albertson. Um, as I want to rotate into value stocks, and we've kind of seen value stocks do better. We've seen financials do a little bit better recently. I think there will be a rotation. It's like tech has taken a lot of the upside away. I believe in them because even if I'm buying a, a true, dom- truly dominant and game-changing uh, tech stock with a lot of momentum to go forward, It's like, if you buy 20% too high and a company is compounding at 100% a year or compounding at 50% a year, it's like you kind of don't care. You just want to catch on whenever you can and hold on for dear life. Um, But I want to rotate us out out of more speculative growth stocks into value is my core thesis. And so Albertsons, quick pitch, elevator pitch, um, dominant and second largest, uh, grocery store chain in America. I don't love groceries. It's bad. It's a bad low margin business, but it's sticky and stable. And through COVID, no matter what happens to COVID, I know Albertsons is going to keep making money. Right. I think there's a lot of upside, a lot, some, a good portion of their revenues are in kind of gas sales. And we know gas and, and motor travel is down or it's, it's been recovering, but you know, it's generally down from where it was. So I think there's an upside factor there. I think it's resilient in terms of what happens if we have to keep staying at home in lockdowns. Like people are buying more food and you got upside there. And third, let me show you the valuation. It's insane. It's It just went public this summer and it's not very well covered. So I think they, it's trading at a discount to Kroger. And so by the way, what Kroger is to the middle of the country and kind of Southeast, Albertsons is the West Coast. Like I grew up across the street from an Albertsons and they're generally mid-tier, nicer kind of ones. They're like mid-tier. They're not like Whole Foods, but they're not like, you know, kind of Aldi or Lidl or whatever you have, whatever you, you know. Anyway, whatever. They're trading at 4.7 times forward EBITDA. So all you got to do is believe they survive for four years, four and a half years, and you get paid back in cash your full investment. Now you own a company for free. Think about it like that. When valu- valuations get that low, I mean, all you gotta do is make sure the cash flow stays the same, and you own it for you own it for four years. You get paid back your investment. That's like, hey man, give me a hundred bucks. I'll give you twenty a year back, and then you're like, heck yes. As long as you believe that I'll be there giving you twenty bucks a year for more than four years, you pay me a hundred bucks. I pay you 20 year, year, 20 a year, 20 a year, 20, a year, 20 a year, 20, or sorry, 25, 25 a year, 25 a year, 25 a year. And after four years, you're like, wow, now I have to keep paying you 25 and your money's, you get paid your money back. And so I'm trying to bring it around to valuation super low. I think it's a super resilient business, no matter what happens with COVID. And I think there are some upside factors there, even though grocery stores are tough. Um. cool awesome uh, compared to Walgreens and Dollar General Dollar General is trading at much higher multiples compared to Walgreens Walgreens Boots Alliance I think these stocks have a lot more upside like they're kind of vying for um, public health too right they have the like Walgreens and CVS have those minute clinics those initiatives they have these partnerships with like all like uh express scripts and they're doing a lot more but okay walgreens is trading at 6.8 times forward ebitda for 12 months ebitda it's not so bad interesting okay walgreens boots alliance interesting 6.8 pretty cheap uh oh here's why oh never mind here's why they have less than a 5% ebitda margin very very low margins. So let's compare Walgreens. Oh yeah, sorry. Let me share my screen. To. What am I talking about? CVS. CVS. Okay, cool. So okay, see, Walgreens is trading at six point eight times forward EBITDA and. CVS is trading at 7.1. So again, they have better EBITDA margins. They're better run. They are a little bit more dominant than Walgreens. They're a little bit bigger. They're bigger than Walgreens. And thus they trade at a, you know, half a turn premium to Walgreens. So again, I think the reason why is because they have they're really low growth and they're really low margin. So they're stable businesses, sure. But I don't, they don't get me out of bed for sure. They don't get me out of bed. Uh, I got one more. Uh, Chan Y is asking about Finserve ticker FISV. Um, I always like to buy back office software stocks. Love that too. I agree. I mean, like, I, I, yes sorry, B2B software, right? Like I see we work with Asana, we work with Atlassian, we work with Salesforce, we work with Smartsheet, we work with all these things. When you know how sticky they are in businesses, you love B2B software stocks. And that's why B2B software stocks have such a high multiple and high valuations because everyone loves them, they're super sticky, they're high quality businesses, high margin, high growth potential too, uh, high high incremental ROIX when they catch on because all you gotta do is flip a switch and say, you have a subscription, on, right? There's no incremental capital needed. Um, so, in that sense, it's kind of like infinite incremental ROICs. Or, sorry, infinite. Yeah, I mean, it's not infinite because they spend on marketing costs. Right? Um, sorry, I digress. FinServe, F I S V. I don't know what they do. Let's read the summary together. They provide account processing systems. Electronic payments, processing, electronic bill payments, transaction processing, account to account transfers, person-to-person payments, internet and mobile banking systems. I don't know how dominant they are. They're 70. Oh, they're big. $70 billion market cap. Okay, so they're huge. So this is a mega cap stock. I don't know how. Been, fizz, Fiserv, not Finserve. Is that right? Yeah, Fiserv. Let me share my screen. And they're trading at 15 times 4 at EBITDA. I would imagine, interesting, this is interesting, why they have such great growth right now, but only high teens here. I don't know, but this looks really interesting. This looks interesting. I will add this to my list. I'll add it to my list. I have no answer for you right now. Pfizer, ticker F uh PD I'll add it to my list Cool thank you so much for the road questions we'll get to voicemails now it's already 836 yeah huge banking yeah so I, I just I haven't I haven't been in back office banking so um, there are logos in the Buck stadium uh, okay yeah I mean I, I, I would need to do more digging it, it looks it looks pretty good like it looks interesting so you're you're on something um, just from f- f- quick glance, like sometimes, right, qu- quick glances just say, okay, let's do more digging. So that that's what I would say. Like, let's do more digging on Fiserv. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, it, it, maybe the revenue – yeah, you're right, David. That's a great point. Maybe the revenue growth there was an acquisition. So I, I, I wouldn't know. I have to read the filings. Um Okay. Let's – oh, wait. So it seems like someone else – posted a question so i have to refresh you guys are gonna make me go over i was a little late so it's okay i'll go a little bit over good week for everyone i hope so okay so perry thank you so much perry talking about asana and talking about so asana ticker asan how will they handle Moat? so i think When people think about moat, right? um, It's, they learn it from Warren Buffett, right? Who's not a software guy. And they learn it from, um, in the sense that we always got to look for a moat, which is not always true, right? Because I'm just saying, like the thesis on Albertsons is the fact that It has no moat, right? Like anybody can open up a superstore next to them and, you know, uh, just like sell products too. Uh, There's really no moat there. Um, What I would say with business software as a service moats, there are some network effects, but then there's some corporate mindshare process and stickiness um, that kind of are really, really strong. It may not look like a classic value investor moat, but in like them combined, turn into a moat. So this is why business to business software is so valuable because being a the best and dominant, and sticky um, business software is itself a moat. Like, if you do the best one, right? Microsoft Office, they have all that stuff. All corporations are not a corporation until they have Microsoft Office, right? Like, there's a point in that that makes it sticky, right? They put in Cloud, they have uh, SharePoint and OneDrive, a lot of these things. the integrations of Word, how Word copies and pastes into PowerPoint, all these things, people get trained on that stuff. And then companies save their files in that format. And they live and breathe their business uh, down. They live and breathe that business or that process within their business. And once you have that momentum, it's impossible to rip out. I remember my first internship was at a small boutique investment bank when I was in high school because I knew I wanted to do this. Um, they made me input like things into sales this this new CRM system, Salesforce. And I, I remember I was like, as a high schooler, I was like, "This is just a really clunky version of Excel. Why wouldn't we just do it in Excel?" There was no there's no th- differentiation of Salesforce's CRM system, especially at first. There are plenty of CRM systems, but they built and iterated added features, added integrations, added capabilities to Salesforce to the point where Salesforce itself now is not just a CRM, it's a platform. It's a full suite platform, um, almost like its own operating system. Now, Asana and Atlassian are fully integrated in like the agile scrum development process. like that's, they're taking that mindset and trying to apply it to all types of work, which I kind of agree with. Um, And if you kind of look at what they offer, right? And I agree, right? Trello is free and so is Asana, Asana is free. But once you get the corporate accounts, you start saving your files within this framework of Asana and it like feeds on itself. When when people learn how to use Asana, um, then they, like the corporate culture is like, we're in Asana culture. We work off of Asana. We're comfortable with the Asana. What is the ROI for a company to rip out Asana, potentially endanger its business performance and replace it with like an Atlassian <clears throat> or replace it with, a monday.com well first of all asana has way more than monday.com second of all there's no point right there's no point in doing that especially when they're kind of around the same price there's no point so there's some inherent moats around there and i would just say being a business business b2b software company and getting large accounts um, are, is almost a moat in itself so cool and again sparty Oh, you're talking about DBX. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Appreciate it. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain, right? Because it isn't like a classic network effect. But I will say, I would re- rather take Salesforce.com than an Uber, Lyft, uh, Postmates any day of the week. Even though Uber, Postmates, Lyft, all these things, they have a classic moat. They have network effect. You have a, you have a bi-directional network effect. you got buyers and sellers, buyers and sellers, buyers and sellers. But guess what? How good was eBay's moat? How good is Postmates mo- moat? Because when I order dinner, I'm starving. What should I eat today? It's either pizza or burritos. I'm pretty easy. Um, maybe not. Maybe I should get a salad. Um, yeah. So like, what is their moat? Their moat was nothing, or they had a moat, but like, guess what? Amazon laughs in the face of eBay's moat because eBay never owned the homepage of shopping. Um, Anyway, now we're in an Etsy world, I guess. Cool. Yeah, Dropbox, right? Dropbox was first a the cloud. Fain a cloud dominant anymore. Um, cool, awesome. Let's do some voicemail questions. Thank you so much for being here. I always really appreciate you all being here, seriously. Um, and, oh man, I, 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 we have, okay. We have a lot of voicemail questions to get through and a lot of probably chat questions to get through. So I really apologize. It's a lot today, but we'll get we'll, we'll try to get through as much as we can, and we'll go to 9.15 my time, 10.15 Eastern, and uh, we'll try, that, try our best.
1: Hey, Justin. I hope all is well. Thanks for the great content. Uh, I know September is historically a bad month for stocks, but I'm a bit concerned with... October coming up because the election is quite early in November. So, do you think uh, the market is just going to continue to take a pounding? Are SACs going to be able to have uh, the, um, the merger act as a catalyst and shoot up prices possibly? I mean, I know nobody knows for sure, but just would like your two cents on this. Once again, thank you.
0: Um, yeah, so. I would avoid trying to look at past seasonal performance of the stock market because it really doesn't mean that much to me, to me. Um, So like, just, I would throw that out there because it's kind of like people do this for a living and they can't predict. Uh, What I would say is you, I believe we're going to see whipsawing back and forth. And if you read the newsletter this morning, you'll know that I'm keeping an eye on consumer spending and the stimulus. But my base case scenario is that we're going to whipsaw and potentially go sideways and then earnings will catch up and then we can resume kind of a bull market, maybe a bull-ish market. We'll see, that's base case. Like I am less a bear obviously now. And for those of you that follow me constantly, like you'll know, like I get more information. I change my mind. I constantly re-analyze and renegotiate with myself. Um, so I would say I think we're going to see whipsawing but I think I would rather bet on the downside than the upside. So I think if we were to make a strong move up or down, if I had to pick out of a bag, I would say we need, we probably have more downside before I'm like taking that 20% cash allocation down more. And I'm assuming a lot of you have jobs. So just keep investing and stuff like that. Um, Obviously max out your 401ks and all that stuff. Um, I don't think, I think you should keep dollar cost averaging, but For example, if you are earning $1,000 a month in savings that you want to invest, right? A good way to play it would be if you agree with my target allocations and you want to invest those thousand thousand new dollars into into investments, just invest it in the percentage that the the pie chart is. So save 20% of it in your brokerage Invest half of it into your favorite long-term stocks. Invest 20% of it into a real estate, maybe fund rise, or if not, just do cash if, if you don't believe in that piece. And, you know, if you like the gold Bitcoin thing, go ahead. So, you know, I think that's how I would play that. Like, that's where I am now. So keeping 20% cash allocation and as you earn, just distributing those savings in that manner as well and but that doesn't account for the fact that i think we should all have a six month try to shoot for a six month at least kind of emergency fund if you can i know i know everyone can't do it but if you can i think it's really nice to have
1: hey justin i hope all is well um i heard about this guy mary williams and he's apparently a technical analysis expert i don't know if you care about that because you're an investor and you're looking for compounders and all that, but so you probably don't care about stock price, just believe in the growth and uh, the discounted cash flow. But is there any uh, validity to, uh, to technical analysis and what these guys predict, like, oh, the market's going to crash on such and such date, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, just wanted to know your thoughts about that. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Yeah, so technical analysis. I did a lot on, on TikTok. It captures the mind of Gen Z right now. And I was the only one that didn't really care enough, right? Like I don't care about internet clout. <laughs> like go look at my TikTok. That's how I got a quarter million followers on TikTok. I haven't done TikTok. I've I've been focusing on YouTube. Um I've been very vocal against technical analysis. Uh If it works, it's extraordinarily rare to be good enough to consistently make money. So even the best people, like even the best course teachers that sell you a big expensive course uh, will admit that. They'll be like, oh yeah, it's hard work and it's really hard to be one of the best. Okay, so taking that into account. Two, you have to be doing it during the nine to four period of time. So you have to do it instead of earning money somewhere else. Thirdly, you have to invest your own money. So you're only gonna make as much as you're able to put down on a trade, on an intraday trade or intraweek trade. So if you're not rich already, then it's gonna take a while for you to like, unless, but again, maybe you can compound at one or 2% a day, maybe. which is crazy, right? Then you're gonna be a billionaire, um, man. I answered all these questions in TikToks. So you guys go check out my TikTok. Um, I did one where I said, uh, well, like, if you're if technical analysis if day trading really works, then why aren't you a billionaire, bro? Right? Like that's what I said because I basically said um, if you just compound one percent a day in like four years, you'd be the richest man in the world. So why why isn't some of the richest people in the world, a day trader. Uh, Yeah. And there's a lot to that. Um, So what I'm saying is, even if it does exist for certain oracles out there that can like predict short-term price movements, then, um, you know, then you're not going to probably be that guy. And even if you are that guy, then, um, or, or woman, then, yeah, why would you, like, you have a, you are, you are better suited working your day job. I'm not one of these people that, like, I'm working a day job. You guys are hopefully working on a day job. I, you know, I make more per hour in my day job in a high-skilled thing than I could probably make taking all my money and day trading it. Um, so, anyway, that, that's, I would just say, it's kind of a waste of time if you really think about it, and also if you think about how many 60 year old rich dudes do you ask out there that have a boat or something and are happily retired and you're like, hey, how'd you, how'd you do it? How'd you, make, how'd, you make, uh, how'd you make your money? Not one of them says day trading. So they all filter out at the end. Another good point is day trading only gets popular, and I saw this back in 2008, right? My generations, when I was young and my generations crash. Um, it only gets popular when there's high volatility. So meaning when there's high volatility in the stock market, there's enough swings that people trick themselves into thinking they can make like 2% a day. But for the last 10 years before COVID, we've had low volatility and just kind of slow grind up and not a lot of movement in an intraday chart. So what are you gonna do? Like you can't really day trade no movement, right? So there's like a lot of things, right? Anyway, cool. Awesome, guys. Uh, well, let's, let's keep chucking through. I know we're... Oh, I got to pick raffle winners. So the first raffle winner, uh, again, if you haven't entered already, go enter. Link below. The first $30 giveaway winner is... So Jeff K., an American. Okay, it's not just Canadians here. Jeff K., you won 30 bucks. I will be Venmoing or PayPaling it to you later on. Uh, And the first winner, the winner of last week's hundred dollar giveaway, was Adnan, who is a Canadian. Adnan, Canadian. Jeff K, American. Cool. Okay, so let's do the other one. Okay, this is. Uh, I just want. uh, Twenty-eight.
1: I just want to clarify. Uh, I'm 28. I do like the uh, whole fundraise play. I have a little bit of money in there, not nothing significant by any means. And I'd love to put more in it, um, but the issue is, if I take out the money from the IRA, I'm going to have to pay a huge, you know, a tax penalty, which would eat up like any like tax returns I'd get from the private real estate over like a REIT. So maybe would you recommend any type of REIT? Um the issue is I don't really understand bonds that well. Just I actually have a finance degree. Um I mean some of these high yielding bond funds are yielding five percent um like J and K and stuff. So uh,
0: thanks. Hey, so I would say I would rather go with REITs than a high yield bond fund. Um what I think we'll see is I don't know, right? It, The the Fed is now doing something arguably out of its charter and illegal um, that is backstopping corporate bonds now. Like that's not in its charter. So neither here nor there. I would rather go with REITs that like stable, stable residential REITs over uh, high yield bond funds because you'll see some bankruptcies through this period of time. You're going to see bankruptcies and high yield bonds are what we call junk bonds. And I I started out on a high yield bond issuance, bond and leverage loan issuance. That's what we call leverage finance um, at Deutsche Bank. Um, So I would stay away from that. For the first question, the most important question, yeah, don't touch the IRA money, man. Don't touch it. Don't pull it out. Don't pull it out and pay that tax penalty. What I will say is certain private vehicles allow you to use IRA money and buy uh, that. So here's a good example. I think Grayscale Investments that does Bitcoin allows you to use retirement funds. So let me just Google Fundrise IRA account. IRA investing by Fundrise. Looking. Oh, look, see, okay, so this is interesting. So I'm learning with you, right? So here, let me change my view. Uh, desktop, okay. So looking to invest with an IRA teamed up with Millennium Trust Company to allow you to invest IRA funds into diversified commercial real estate investments. So if you want to use IRA funds and want to allocate a portion of that to uh, real estate and you're happy with these, like I'll show you, with these kind of these types of returns, annualized returns through real estate. And then again, they, guys, they can explain they're their really, I love them because they, they do so much for like analysis and they're probably... They're better at analysis than they are than anything else, um, like like all this stuff. It's so cool. Um, I nerd out about this. Um, if you're good with like Fundrise in your IRA, I would probably do look into doing stuff through this. Right. Um, that being said, you're 28 years old, man. For your tax advantage accounts, that you're not gonna be you're not gonna be doing much with. Don't forget about capital compounders and growth stocks. Just don't forget about those. But if you're if you're like kind of afraid of the markets and you want more stable allocations, then I would prefer this right here personally. And it's not just because I'm sponsored. I mean, I reached out to them, right? So like I would rather do this personally than a high yield bond fund at 5%. Or I mean, I guess another good example, if you're gonna, if you're gonna play that and you don't wanna do real estate and you want to do corporates, right? High yield bond is corporates. So s- s- companies have high yield bonds and they have stocks, right? So so if you don't want to do that, then um, let's see, then you can do like AT&T, right? And let's see what they're yielding on a dividend yield. Okay, and AT&T, is yielding a 7% dividend yield, but they've tanked. So, again, maybe you look, for, so high yield bonds, I would rather you find good dividend stocks than a high yield bond at this point. Um, because I think spreads and what I call like high yield debt premiums are really compressed at this point. I really don't like it. And yields are low. So, but I would rather do this than either one of them. And because real estate is less correlated to the markets and corporates than a high-yield bond fund would be or dividend stocks would be. So that's just my two cents. Um, All right, let's keep chugging through. I know we're not going to get through all of them, but we'll try our best.
2: Hey, Justin, uh, big fan of the show. Um, I just had a quick question. Um, I was wondering if you had done any research on CRISPR uh, with Cas9's genetic uh, engineering type deal. There's some companies like CRISPR Therapeutics and then Editas who are doing it right now. And all the stuff I've really looked at with them, it seems super positive. Um so I was just kind of wondering if you could take me back down to Earth before I kinda go big into this stuff. Um because I know uh Kathy Woods pretty big into this as well. So appreciate it. Uh love the show. Cool. Thanks.
0: Bye. Hey, thanks for the question. So um really interesting question. Uh Kathy Wood, I have a lot of respect for her. Uh, she's really innovative in a way that wall street isn't. You wouldn't believe every time I talk about tech and innovation in a way that a Silicon Valley person does, I get like poo pooed out the room because, uh, wall streeters are generally LBO guys. Like they would rather have a business that doesn't grow and they want to financially engineer returns with leverage. Um, and they like you know widget manufacturers and stuff like that, but uh, I'm a big fan of Square. I added Square to the rope big board. I am now a very mild Tesla bull. It's a tiny sliver of a position because I love it and I'm a fanboy. Uh, CRISPR to me is harder to wrap my mind uh, around, and the reason is. I think they have a lot going for them. But if you look at the valuations for, a, for a CRISPR, let me just go back, CRISPR. And for those of you that don't know what CRISPR is, it's, I mean, let's, it's uh, like a genetic gene editing tool. So we can edit genes now. Um, where am I going? Uh, I lost my spot. Okay. Look, at the, uh, like you can't value this company, right? This is a complete pre-revenue company. They don't really make any money. Excuse me. Um, they don't really make any money. So, like, you're betting on is if it becomes a thing or not. So, I can't tell you. I don't know whether gene editing is going to start making money in the next five years or 10 years. I can get it's probably going to be a thing in the next 50 years, but they ain't making money now. Um, So I can't buy the stock at a five billion dollar valuation. Just not knowing. So just understand it's one of those time capsule investments This to me is more like Bitcoin and any money that I put into CRISPR, I'm probably rather putting into Bitcoin because I've done way more research on it. And I'm more comfortable with there being an independent reserve currency slash gold equivalent. So cool. Oh, wait. So Joe, you're asking me about something. Hold on. Joe, you're in uh, IB, investment banking, and you hate it. But the pay keeps you going. It's those golden handcuffs, man. Oh, wait. Let me change my view. Golden handcuffs, man. I left banking. I left banking pretty quickly. Went to the buy side. Buy side is... um, Grass is greener a bit. Buy side, you can make more money. But in reality, uh, your risk-weighted... Your risk-adjusted comp probably isn't that bad if you're if you're good at banking, uh, you can make a good, like bankers are making a ton this year. I will say your likelihood to lose your job and underperform on the buy side is much higher than banking. So that's why you see a lot of bankers go to buy side and they get popped right back to banking because look, like, let's be honest, when you're an investment banker, you do the same skills without the business analysis and thought. So if we ever take our company public or we sell our company, which eventually as time equals infinity will happen, um, I'm going to, I'm going to hire the investment bankers I want. I'm going to order them to make the pitch decks because I'm paying and I'm going to tell them what management projections are. Right. So they're not going to like their creativity in terms of, is this a good buy or sell they don't have to be right or wrong on that. They just have to make the stuff and make it happen. And they make exorbitant fees on it. So in that sense, if you think you can move up the ranks in investment banking, yeah, it's a lot of money. I will say, though, if you hate it, there's a lot of money to be made in corp dev and eventually maybe being the CFO of a company. I mean, it's, it's a tough it's – it's kind of a tough transition, and I've luckily been able to do it. But um, keep your options open. Keep your options open. Um, cool. Let's keep chugging along. I'm going to do like two more voicemail questions and then I'll get to the remainder next week. Hopefully, hopefully I'll move faster. So sorry. And then I got, then I'll pick the last, uh, winner. I'm going to pay you guys. I'm going to send the money tomorrow morning. I got to go eat dinner, but, um, cool. I'm going to do two more.
2: Hey, Justin, it's Anthony here. Just want to say this episode has been one of the best I know you keep saying you're a bit scatterbrained, but uh, even your answer on that question about um, the guy with uh, the balance sheet and income statement that's kind of flipped compared to most people watching, Thanks. it was such a thorough answer, uh, and I learned a lot from it. But um, my question was on um, the right proxy to use for cash flow when you're valuing companies. I know when you're looking at startups, you use a multiple on sales, and then you were talking about uh, looking at the multiple on gross profit in five years. So I just want to know, like, if you can describe at what point do you look at sales as your proxy versus gross profit versus maybe um, operating cash flow all the way down to just straight PE, uh, looking at the earnings. Um, and then lastly, when you look at an Amazon and Apple, is it all are they so mature enough that uh, PE is is the most valid? Um, multiple to look at, or even for an Amazon, would you be looking at something else like sales or gross profit as your proxy? Anyways, thank you again, Justin, appreciate uh, all the insights. Thanks again.
0: Bye. Anthony, nice to talk to you again. Um, yes. Thanks so much for that compliment. Really appreciate it. Um, so answering these questions kind of come down the right proxy to use for cash flow. The best one that we use in the industry is uh, EBITDA minus CapEx. And, that basically tries to approximate what operating cash flow would be. So, EBITDA minus CapEx for a normal ish company. Um, EBITDA is a good one, but it doesn't take into effect CapEx that you need to spend. So, EBITDA minus CapEx. That's what I would say. Classicists, and what I mean by that, I would say like Buffett, Graham, all those guys love price to earnings because it is academically right. So there are two sides like it's not an agreed upon thing. So when you when I when I say my opinions on this, it's going to be what I like, right? There's no right or wrong answer and that's why the smartest people in the world like Ackman is are wrong a lot of the times. Um, price to earnings is conceptually right because earnings take into effect taxes which are real and more specifically Depreciation depreciation and amortization is a proxy, a smoothed out accounting version of capital expenditure. So you spend on CapEx and you depreciate that over time. And so over time, DNA should be equivalent to what CapEx should be. Fair enough. My problem is it takes so much work to parse through an income statement down to earnings to make sure adjusted earnings is right. Secondly, I think a lot of things are problematic with GAAP accounting or just IFRS accounting or anything. So accrual accounting that we care about cash. So I'm like on the Wall Street side of things where we care more about cash, uh, cash flows. So the best metric really is free cash flow, right? Free cash flow. So it's operating cash flows minus minus like... uh, Investing cash flows. Like that's just operating cash flows minus investing cash flows, free cash flow. And how much free cash flow are, is that company, mature company, spitting out Be, uh, as compared to the valuation you're buying in at, right? So think about it like a bond. Like you get this much cash per year from this company based on this price that you're buying for the bond or the company. So I prefer free cash flow yield and I prefer free cash flow yield on mature companies over price to earnings any day of the week. I don't like price to earnings are easy to calculate on a S and P level. So when you're doing hundreds of companies, so I like doing like I do PE when looking at the whole market, but for a mature company, free cash flow yield. If I had to pick one free cash flow yield for companies like Amazon or Google, or things that actually still have good growth rates. I know they're huge, but they're still growth companies, right? Like, even if I look at Google, they're expected to grow at over 15% a year over the next five years and continuing, right? That's a growth company. That's not that stagnant. So in that sense, you kind of have to do both. You have to look at EV to EBITDA because they are profitable. And then I look at sales growth and profitability. And thus, how fast do I think gross profit's gonna grow and how fast do I think EBITDA is gonna grow? And so if I can get to somewhere in that like 10 to 15 times forward EBITDA range in this year or next year, I think it's a really, and you think that, in other words, if you think EBITDA is a proxy for cash flow, and you're buying something at 15 times EBITDA, right? that means that you're buying it at a 6.7%, so flip flip the equation, 6.7% EBITDA yield, right? And so if we can, you're telling me I can buy one of the most dominant companies in the world, Google, at a 12 times forward projected EBITDA multiple, so one divided by 12, and so if I buy Google now and they grow next year and they don't do anything, they're going to spit off 8% of what I just bought it at in EBITDA every year forever. I mean, that's better than any bond I've ever seen, right? But nonetheless, they're going to be growing at 15% a year. So it's a little more nuanced with the capital compounders. I think you look at forward EBITDA and you try to get, and you kind of think about it like that. And then you kind of look at growth and then you look at. How good are the unit economics? They have really high gross profits over 50%. So, just quality of business. And then at that point, you're like, how far can they keep this up? And that's where you get into this like moat domination. Um, you know, Ben Thompson runs a really good, uh, kind of behind a paywall, deep tech strategy uh, news- newsletter called techery and podcast. So, go check him out. I mean. He, I love all that stuff, right? I talk a lot. I, I talk a lot more about business strategy than I even do valuation, and so that's what I, I look at for the capital compounders. Now, for undervalued stocks like a, a, like a, a for stagnant ish businesses that are more undervalued stocks that you just think are undercovered or for some reason are just really lowly priced, like 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 uh, Albertsons. You look at free cash flow yield, and you look at EV to, EV to EBITDA, enterprise value to EBITDA. And you look at really cash metrics. And if you're looking at growth companies, the more growthy it is, the more you're looking at uh, enterprise value to forward gross profit. So revenue growth, the only thing I care about on revenue is revenue growth. I don't like enterprise value to sales. Do you know why? Because enterprise value to sales for a... um, For a retailer that sells t-shirts for a 5% margin is just so different from enterprise value to sales for salesforce.com that has like 80% gross margins, right? You just make more money the more you sell on on Salesforce than you do a t-shirt retailer even if their revenue growth is the same. So I look at enterprise value to forward gross profit because that takes into account um, that whether or not you're buying, if you're selling uh, T-shirts or software, and then I look at revenue growth because that gross profit will grow in tandem with revenue growth. Does that make sense? So hopefully that makes sense. Cool, awesome. Um, I'll do one more and then I really gotta gotta go, and then and then we'll uh, yeah, and then I'll pick the last winner. Okay, so that one was dead. Hey, so last week I asked about CRISPR.
1: I don't know if you're gonna get to it today, but I want to know if it would be a good time to buy. Okay,
0: so, and, so we talked about CRISPR. Um,
1: should I wait for it to get a patent or something? And if you already got that question. What do you think about Zillow? Is it a fine time to buy it? And also, would it be a bad time to buy it now because of the climate? Um, And on top of that, real estate seems to be shifting right now from cities to more rural areas. As you said, the Sun Belt, Um, New York City, is looking really depressive and almost in a bubble. I'm looking at some houses there just for fun and obnoxiously overvalued for really, you know, not great buildings. So, what do you think about? that and the shift and what I should do about Zillow and if it's a good time to buy, thank
0: you. Yep, I really like Zillow. Uh, I don't know why I haven't added to, to the strong growth section of the Rogue Big Board yet, but they're trading, let me show you guys. This is a very technical session. Um, so Zillow is trading at 14 times forward. I think they have a lot of barriers to entry. They own Zillow and Trulia and hot pads and they are growing at expected crazy clip they've got solid gross margins they're not profitable yet but they're at that scale where they're kind of going to scale over profits i really like it honestly i pr- probably rather i would rather own zillow than red i don't know i'd rather own zillow than redfin open door but Owning a basket of Zillow Redfin open door isn't a bad option to me. I think but I would probably own more Zillow than the other two, just because the other two are just so early stage. Um, and they can do I buying if, if they want. I mean, yeah. So I just like I think this is a really good play. Like I, I like Zillow for sure. And I'll I should I'm gonna write a note to consider it for the Rogue big board as well. Um, let me see, where did my notes go? So we have Fiserv and Zillow. Um, the whole rural movement to the Sun Belt, Yeah. Like I think I agree. I mean, and I think Fundrise sees it when you talk to their investment group and I see it, I'm in Nashville in the smile state kind of thing. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it affects your, my investing, my public market investing decision, but it definitely affects my Fundrise investing position or, you know, the massive amounts of real estate we own here in Nashville. Um, you know, and the second I see Nashville's things turning, like where I don't think that this has inherent advantages for growth, then maybe I'll sell some of these places and invest elsewhere elsewhere. So anyway, cool. Awesome. So that was the last question. I'm a little over time. I appreciate you all so much. And thank you so much for another great session. We were a little more technical today. Um, and I loved it, uh, like I love it, I love it. So we're gonna pick the last winner. So the last winner of the $30 raffle, which I'll, pick, I'll send it tomorrow morning, is Bob S. I think this is your second time winning. Bob S from the United States, Bob S. You have a long last name, so if that gives you a hint. Um, awesome, thank you so much. This is really great and it's great to see you all again. I'll be here next Thursday. And um, you know, as the channel grows and as we can't get to all these questions, Um, We're we're getting through most of them still, so I'm not too worried. Um, I'm going to try to get to everybody. And, again, on ROIC, every week or so, I try to, like, respond to all DMs. So if you're a ROIC supporter on there. Um, Don't worry. We kind of revamped the logo so that we can make merch and give away, like, T-shirts and stuff. So that will be fun, too. So I appreciate it. Uh, Have a great night. Hopefully you all are staying safe and, uh, you know safe during pandemic and just safe in general and investing wisely. So appreciate it and have a great night. We'll see you next time. Bye.